Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Ostel. Thinking about building customer-centric products from the beginning and like how you bring on a commercial hire that can help you do that, or how you can allocate more of your time if you're a scientist, CEO, and founder to that work, I think is something that I actually think is changing really positive way where I think people are like learning the playbooks, learning the business models really quickly. And where like three years ago, I think coming out of a lab, there were much fewer people that had done it and done it successfully and scaled and also less infrastructure around supporting them. Well, Lily, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Nick. I'm psyched to be here. So talk to me about your journey to becoming a climate tech investor. I know that's not the only thing you invest in at Wireframe Ventures, but let's go with that angle to start. Basically for me, it was a lot of luck, but in terms of becoming a VC, I think climate was something that I had been thinking about a lot, maybe starting seven years ago when I was in one of my first roles out of college. I started to work at a consulting firm that was loosely branded as a social impact consulting firm. We did a range of work from engagements with big corporations, multinational, international development groups like USAID and others, as well as government. And it was a mix of advisory work on how those types of stakeholders could allocate resources to create social impact, whatever that meant to the decision makers at those organizations, as well as some implementation work on like actually managing the programs they were running, especially for philanthropies. In that work, I was doing a lot of work in access to reproductive health care and vaccines outside of the U.S. And also started doing a lot of work with corporations. And one of the projects I got staffed on, or I requested to be staffed on, was working for like a big standards nonprofit that basically brought together a bunch of multinational food and ag companies to set standards around traceability and transparency in their supply chains. And core to that was obviously like labor standards and fair trade, but also decarbonization and thinking critically about how these big corporations with amazing amount of leverage over their suppliers could best position them to make changes in their supply chain. And it was really fascinating work. I think it really lined up with a lot of like the solutions focused work that I was gravitating towards in climate. I think back then, I mean, and always there is important work around characterizing the challenge that we're facing. That said, I think that is often, at least historically, what is most talked about in mainstream media and even in some like academic and professional circles that are working on the challenge. And again, super important. We would be nowhere without knowing what to do and and what the scope of the problem is. But it was one of my first experiences being surrounded by a lot of people that have been actively working on climate solutions for decades. And I think ag is really special or food and ag in general is very special because it kind of hits all the big kind of modes of action, whether it's emissions avoidance and mitigation, adaptation, and even removal and drawdown. So I kind of got addicted. And I think 
I don't know, something that we've talked about before is once you start working in climate, I think it's pretty hard to feel the same way about anything else, both because of the scope of the problem and, and the people working on it, but also just the urgency of what we're up against. So anyway, so that was kind of like my first time working professionally with climate organizations and big companies trying to decarbonize their supply chains. And in general, I was really optimistic about what we could do and the technologies we had to make a better, more livable world as it's warming. But I was not, as an individual, particularly energized by the way that corporations were set up to meet that challenge. And I thought to myself after this experience, like, wow, I found that like the types of solutions I'm really excited about supporting. I have found what I think is probably like the opposite end of the spectrum from where I want to be working on those solutions. And so I knew, I don't know anything about tech. I had not been exposed to really any venture backed entrepreneurs or startups uh, professionally or in my education at all. But I knew that a startup was probably the opposite of a public company. (laughs) And I didn't have any technical skills. And I didn't know, I think, enough about how I would be useful to startups, given how little I knew about them. So I figured I should probably go into something that felt similar to a consulting firm, like a professional services organization. And I found out that that's what venture is. And that's basically as far as I thought it through. (laughs) So I looked for venture firms that had a history of investing in decarbonizing food and ag systems and ended up applying to and getting a job at Collaborative Fund, which is a generalist fund that backs a bunch of climate solutions. And they had invested in Impossible Meat and Beyond Food, and they had a huge alternative protein portfolio. And I really appreciated like both obviously the work they had done and also just the way that they talked about the climate crisis as being kind of the transformational cultural shift of our generation and what that meant for what we consume. And they took a chance on somebody, again, who didn't know basically the difference between a Series A and Series D. (laughs) And I joined their seed investing team in New York about four years ago now. And yeah, that's how I came to the work and got to help them build up that portfolio over the course of, yeah, three and a half years or so and, and did a wide range of business models, technologies, and yeah, it was an awesome place and moment to be in climate tech starting four years ago now when it looked very different. And the number of founders dedicating their lives to climate was, I think, a fraction of what we see today. So, yeah. Yeah, that must be exciting for you to have been in the thick of it for a better part of four years now or even longer and see how much it's accelerated. And yeah, it's cool that you started at Collaborative Fund. I think they continue to lead deals that I think are really cool. Like even today, I just saw the news about AlgaeNet, which is a really cool company trying to make fabrics and materials out of kelp instead of all the other stuff that they're normally grown out of. So what are some of your favorite deals that you did in your time investing at Collaborative Fund? So I think what was really special at Collaborative or what is really special is I don't take for granted that like a just a traditional, in many respects, generalist tech fund does as much investing at the forefront of biology, of chemistry, of like really deep technologies where there is binary tech risk and sometimes an overlapping, like very serious question about the market that that technology could capture. And so 
it's a really exciting portfolio they were able to build where I think a lot of other tech funds that have grown up over 10 years doing mostly marketplaces and software wouldn't have opened up the aperture that much. But I think that flexibility is so critical to be a great climate tech investor and or at least at the seed stage because there is so much happening so quickly. And so being able to adapt and start investing across different types of technologies and business models as they come is like a really special position to be able to have. And there are plenty of great general aspect funds that do that as well. But I, I didn't take it for granted being there for that time. Some of the, the companies that I got to support on and work with there, a lot of them were in, but some of them were also... And so companies like Fork and Good and Kula Bio, which are kind of at the intersection of bioengineering and new food and like how we produce it and, you know, removing nitrogen fertilizer from the production system, you know, down to, you know, actually how we produce end products with cultivated meat, which is what Fork and Good does, which I think there is still so much potential. And I think we're kind of like on the edge of solving a lot of problems around enabling infrastructure for those types of businesses. And I think that is, remains a, a super exciting area. And then we also got to do stuff in decarbonizing heavy industry. So got to invest in a company called Brimstone Energy, which has a really radical approach to decarbonizing cement and got to support them with that. And and then even getting into and expanding into adaptation, which is not something I had. I mean, neither cement or like heavy industry or even like basal power production, like companies like Quays or yeah. adaptation are really things that I conceived of as being in scope for any fund that I was a part of for a lot of reasons. But I think it's just a testament to where founders are leading us and also how quickly technology is catching up to what we can do, especially in like very hard debate sectors like cement, right? like 24-7 is factual energy. So those are some of the things that I got to work with them on and are all awesome businesses and super excited to follow along now from an earlier stage fund. So. That's important perspective that you provided on them being a generalist fund, but still doing deals in something like, yeah, Quay's Energy is a great example of like, deep tech, deep geothermal energy, literally, like that's not something that I would normally peg for a fund like that. So them leading in that capacity probably has a lot to do with why the climate tech movement has accelerated in the way that it has. So kudos for being a part of that. But yeah, as you gestured towards, I'd love to hear what motivated the switch to wireframe eventually, and then we can start talking about the work that you're doing there. Totally. So I guess as I called out earlier, I think that once you start working on climate, you don't want to do anything else for the most part. And so I was super lucky to get to support in a lot of that work at Collaborative. And I think it gave me an amazing opportunity to learn from just 10 out of 10 climate founders. And I was kind of coming up to a point where I could see a path where I could be really good partner to founders from day one. And I, I really got a really clear perspective of uh, the type of investing I wanted to do. I learned the difference between Series A and Series D. And <laughs> although there was a while there that it was hard to tell the difference at end zone round. <laughs> but I think that time I getting to work with those founders and, and working with the team, I just got a really clear perspective on where I could best add value and, and what I was good at and what I got the most energy from. And I think that is super early stage, pre-seed and seed investing in 
a very specialized way where we're hopefully just working through the same types of questions every single day. And that allows us to not just be better investors and make better decisions throughout the process because all we do is like look at the same types of companies every day. But most importantly, it allows us to be much more than just a check post-investment and even like build out really specialized services, tools, and products for our company's post-investment. And so got really lucky to get to know the Wireframe team over, I think, maybe a year. We co-invested in one of their companies that they had preceded called Span. I worked on that deal at Collaborative and a later stage round. And so got to know them a little bit through that and, and got to know them just in general as looking at a bunch of the same deals over time and got really excited about, again, what would be possible with such a narrow and focused mandate and everything that we could build. And also just the way that Harsh and Paul think about like venture's role in creating value and transforming industries for the better. And then making the switch at the end of 2021. So have been around for a little over six months. So I kind of know what I'm doing at this point, but <laughs> at any point I'm liable to run into the edge of my knowledge about wireframes. It's still relatively fresh. Well, that's a good thing. I'm sure there's lots of learning in that. And I'm sure that you're also underselling a little bit. I'm confident that you're pushing the envelope. There's a few things that you said that I've found that I think are worth expanding on. I guess to start, I feel like there's probably a lot of listeners that don't really know what being like a pre-seed seed VC is like or what that actually entails. So maybe talk about the day-to-day a little bit and kind of like where the leverage points are. It's also interesting when being a early stage VC, when you are new in a role, which means you don't have that many companies that you're responsible for or that you've led the investment in. So I would say what my role is like now will look very different in the next 12 months once just I'm working with more companies in terms of the amount of time that I allocate across different things. But for the most part, being a pre-seed and seed stage VC is taking hundreds of calls with amazing companies and getting paid to learn about what they're doing and saying no about 499 times out of every 500 times that you meet with a company. Not an easy task. (laughs) Potentially obvious to others that are in tech or around tech or raise venture funding, but is never fun. And I think for a lot of reasons, both because you talk to amazing people who are doing really important work and not being the right partner for them and get communicating that and you know, when you would love to work with somebody, you know, isn't always the most fun. But also I think it's very high there's a lot of work that you do that doesn't convert into anything long term, if that makes sense. So like the difference between being a consultant is it's like a lot of project-based work. There is an output, there is a deliverable, like we ship something. Maybe that's a report that sits on somebody's desk and never gets read and nothing happens. So who knows? <laughs> but like at least you have produced something. And your work is like not totally linear, but like clearly builds on itself in order to like produce a valuable project over the course of days, weeks, months. In early stage venture, there's not a lot of data. You don't spend a ton of time in diligence talking to customers. I mean, you do all of those things, but it's not like months long work to build towards an investment. It's a lot of like very rapid, high volume conversations and a lot of no's. And I think to do it well, I think. 
it requires like a perspective of every conversation is an opportunity to learn, even if it's not a company that is going to be a fit for investment for your firm. And also hopefully like something I really try to bring is just taking the perspective of minimizing or limiting how extractive I am. So like, even though it is my job to get a bunch of information about the company as quickly as possible in order to make a decision about promoting the company through our process and creating a diligence plan, I think another way to make it feel a little bit less like totally focused on transactions is to really like approach all of those interactions as like, you can also offer something to that founder and like be a resource for them, even if it's just 30 minutes. And then there's a bunch of work, especially to firm like Wireframe, we do 10 to 12 deals a year. It's intentionally like a hyper-concentrated portfolio, again, because we believe that we can add more value than a check. And for that to be true, we need to be able to be really mindful of how we're allocating our resources and being really proactive and present for all the companies we work with. And so we do allocate a bunch of time to supporting our portfolio companies post-investment. And so for me, I'm supporting... We just launched our second fund three months ago. Officially, I'm supporting... A few companies, one is kind of a deal that I led and so it takes a bunch of my time. But that kind of calculus between like deal making and portfolio company support will shift. And then obviously VCs have to fundraise. We have to fundraise in challenging environments. We have to fundraise <laughs> all the time. And especially like this is our fund too. We're an emerging fund. And so I think it cannot be underestimated for anybody at any point in the capital stack what it's like to go through that, how much time and effort that takes. And so that's the other big component of what a VC does. Although, you know, there's certainly more acute moments of fundraising just as if there would be at a startup. So very grateful to not be actively fundraising right now. Yeah, that's a little bit about what it looks like day to day. I mean, I can definitely empathize with the feeling that you gestured at, which is that it probably does feel pretty nonlinear and under the surface sometimes as far as like where the impact and the growth is coming from if a lot of the conversations aren't yielding you all allocating capital. But at the same time, it's contributing to your knowledge of the space. And I'm sure you're contributing knowledge back to the people that are talking to you. So even if it's not like flashy announcements about deals that Wireframe's leading, like each of those is still valuable, I'm sure. The one thing I would add also that I think is maybe not obvious is just how long the feedback loops are in general. So like you make an investment, that investment, I don't know what we're at right now in terms of like average seed to exit time period, but like eight, nine years later, you see if it worked out. Or you might know earlier because they might get it acquired or they might go out of business. But in terms of like knowing you're good at your job, it's pretty hard to identify. You have to be creative around like intermediate signals about getting better at your job over time because you don't invest in that many companies, especially if you're fun like us. And markups are great and markups, you know, might be one indicator, but they're certainly not returns. I think that's the other thing is like it's a very, very fast paced, like make a decision on in a company on a week or two weeks and then hurry up and wait for years and years and years to see what the outcome will be for the founders, for the employees, for your LPs. So that's something I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on too, especially from kind of like the LP's perspective. I'm sure that there's a decent amount of tension between something like looking for those intermediate signals, whether they be markups or something else. You know, these are people that invested in you and are trying to gauge your performance too. And this is true across all adventure, but I think in climate specifically, the time scales can be even longer in some cases. Like these might be companies where 
the market doesn't even really exist yet. We just see a need for like the decarbonization potential of it, but there isn't even less necessarily like companies making money doing whatever it is at current. So talk a little bit about whether that you feel like that's different at wireframe versus collaborative or kind of what you've learned about like that tension specifically over time. Well, I'll speak to it from my perspective. So I'm lucky that I have amazing partners that are great fundraisers and that I am not like quarterbacking those initiatives. I'll, I'll give you my perspective because I think it is really important for in general to better understand like an alignment among everybody at the firm, their investors down to the founders. And I also think, well, I hope that we're entering a phase where founders can seek out firms with investors that are not and LPs that are not just like potential do not just have potential to add strategic value, but also like align with the motivations of those founders. And so I think for us, like my partners, I think have been very mindful about building an LP base that we're really proud to make money for. And, and that looks like endowments and charitable institutions and, and hospital groups that are both like thematically aligned with what we do, investing in health and climate, but also we're really proud to make money for those groups and feel that it's also aligned with the purpose behind most of the companies that we invest in. And I think because we have a very specific mandate, I think it does make it easier for us to, I would imagine, set expectations with our LPs around like, this is what we do, this is how climate companies evolve and tend to grow. I would say there is healthy tension, honestly, especially in climate. Like, I don't think we should compromise on science. I don't think we should compromise on impact. But as we talked about, like, climate change is a timing issue. Like, every single day that passes, we get closer to the window to miss one and a half degrees of warming gets smaller. And so I think, like, that pressure to not just from, like, a portfolio construction best practices of like having diverse like time diversity and business model diversity across the portfolio of like some businesses that will take five years to commercialize versus some years will be out and selling in a year. I think like beyond even like best practices on like financial management, I think for climate impact, like we need a lot of solutions that are deploying now. And I think depending on the sector, depending on geography, we have those technologies ready to go. We need to be creative around the business models that we use to get them into market and to accelerate adoption. But I think from my perspective, I feel that it is a positive pressure to have some companies that will be growing rapidly because that means we're either decarbonizing on the timing that we need to or deploying solutions. But like again, make this already more unpredictable, harder to live in world of ours easier to live in and so like if that's like deploying adaptation solutions around mitigating financial and physical risks that are being introduced by changing climate and weather patterns like that's great for me and i think that's super impactful as well and i think a little bit about like discounting around time and i think a little bit about this is not scientific (laughs) in any way but i do think about like gigaton impact on a time scale and like even if a solution might have less overall or like absolute impact in gigatons, if they're able to immediately and in the short term have impact, I think that's like very worth including in the portfolio and like evaluating that impact. I think it's all important. We have to do all of it at the same time. Yeah, I definitely agree with, you know, not overlooking things that can provide, they might be smaller scale over like a total time horizon, but immediate emissions reductions. Like there's so many reinforcing climate feedback loops that will 
accelerate if we don't reduce emissions quickly, that if you can forestall some of those feedback loops, like even if one technology's reduction is only whatever, 10 units, like it might prevent feedback loops that could result in 100 units of emissions. So definitely sympathize or agree with that. I'm sure somebody has written about it, but I think about it like time adjusted carbon impact. Yeah, so very much agree. And you used a very interesting phrase much earlier in the conversation that I hadn't heard before. I've probably heard it in different guises, but kind of like binary technology risk when there is something that is super net new technology-wise, like how do you assess like really new or unique hardware risk or just like the will this work at all question? (laughs) So there are mix of factors. I would say like for me personally, the first thing I like to do when I meet a company is try to understand what the core risks are. And when it's a climate company, I generally break them up into market and tech risk. Although there is obviously like execution risk and like other like business specific risk, but just like looking at technology in a vacuum. And I think when there is binary tech risk, like we think that we can knock in this gene and it will allow this microbe to live longer in soil which allows it to sequester nitrogen and eliminate all synthetic nitrogen fertilizer use in these crops. Like, but in a field, we've never done it on these crops. Like, we've done it in a lab. I think when there is that type of like basically binary risk, and not everything is, I think, truly binary. Like, I think some things could work if cost was absolutely not a factor. And then there's some things that in the middle, it's like this will only work in like very premium use cases or in very specific environments and with very specific siting requirements or something like that. But when you're looking at that binary, I don't get as excited about backing companies where there's also very little evidence around a large venture scale market in the short term, just because you're counting things to happen at the same time. But take market risk all day with limited tech risk, same on the tech side. I would say in terms of how we evaluate it, I think it depends on the stage of the business. Like investing in pre-seed companies, very much about believing the team, believing that the right people to solve it and coming up with a set of hypotheses that we think that they can test with the seed in order to earn their way into the A. Um, at seed, I think we more often want to see like some demonstration that like you've been able to do it at lab scale. And then we look to have a conversation around what the company thinks are the core drivers that will make that solution economic, whether that's a scale issue, whether it's engineering challenges they need to fix, whether a large list of potential variables that they need to solve with the seed. And so that's what the conversations look like. I would say just given the vast rate of relevant science and technology, we don't have like a standard protocol that we follow of like, okay, we review these papers and we talk to these four people and then we do like this type of lab visit just because the surface area is so large. No, it definitely does. I learned a lot in those last few minutes. That sounds uniquely challenging and talk about also things that you don't get necessarily any market or company-based feedback on for years at a time potentially but also probably some of the most exciting outcomes down the line so we'll see let's talk about some companies you mentioned a deal that you led the team that you work pretty close with now like who are you most excited about in or outside the portfolio either is good i think in terms of some of the stuff and this will be relevant towards like what we're investing in now i think a lot of the work that wireframe has done 
in the past has been around increasing penetration of renewables on the grid and in our transportation systems. And so we're looking increasingly on like how those models apply in emerging markets now that those technologies are even more cost effective than they were when you know we started investing in evs and software to manage those evs and battery management systems to, to manage those assets and so looking for opportunities there which i think is really exciting we're also i think trying to translate a lot of the learnings around solar and like distributed energy deployment in the U.S. to new types of energy resources, whether that's like smart devices in home and like a huge fan of Span, which is a husband wire phone per- portfolio company for years. And I think it's just doing the most amazing work around decarbonizing and electrifying residential homes with like an amazing product that people find like joy in using, which I think is really special in climate tech and is not something I take for granted, but also looking at those applications for commercial and industrial facilities as well. And like finding the right solutions, but if it's not new types of devices, if it's actually new types of power sources and battery systems, or even other types of power like geothermal. So spending a lot of time there, I think super excited, as I mentioned, around our ability to apply new ML platforms as well as this like remote sensing capability that we've seen grow over the last 10 years, whether it's geospatial and satellite powered or even like local on-farm or drone-based systems around predicting and giving people tools to manage physical and financial risks of climate change. So I think we talked about earlier, but Salient is, is a company in our portfolio that we funded a few months ago, doing awesome work around forecasting. I've done some work in, in uh, specifically flood risk in the past at Collaborative. And I think there's just so much opportunity to both power and prepare the existing insurance infrastructure to be able to underwrite and manage this risk, as well as like fundamentally new risk products for corporates, consumers alike. So spending a lot of time there and really proud of the work that Salient's doing. I think the last couple of places where I'm spending a lot of time now where we haven't made as many investments, but spending a bunch of times as, as I think a lot of my other climate tech friends are in battery supply chains. I think, you know, it's hard for any investor right now who's watching the rate environment change and, and watching inflation and understanding kind of the role that supply chain bottlenecks have in, in that macro environment to not be very mindful of what that means, you know, for the economy in general, but also for a lot of the companies that we're investing in that are predicated on the idea that we have access to battery materials <laughs> and these rare earth minerals. Um, so looking at a bunch of solutions up and down that value chain, whether it's like discovery and extraction to battery management systems, to battery cycling, spending a lot of time there. Yeah, second life. Yeah, all of that. And then, you know, I can't go too long without spending time in regenerative food and ag. And, and I think there's still, as I said, I think it's such a special problem set because it can address all the things we want to around emissions, adaptation, and, and resilience as well as removal. And so spending a lot of time there and we're investors in a company called Phytoform or investors in a company called Microworks, which is... Yeah, love Microworks. Yeah, they're awesome. And Full Harvest and a bunch of others that kind of take up different parts of that value chain, whether it's addressing and increasing efficiencies 
in supply chains to reduce waste overall, whether it's actually fundamentally changing the production methods and planning spending a lot more time, especially because something we haven't talked about, but the other side of, of what we do at Wireframe is a lot of health and bio. And so very excited about the continuing innovation cycle at the intersection of bioengineering and food and materials and chemical and high value chemicals as well. So spent a lot of time there. And yeah, and I think the last thing that we are thinking a lot about is a little bit, it's a little bit cliche, I would say, but is around infrastructure for carbon markets. And I think we have been super excited to see the corporate commitments over the last several years really ramp up. And I think this acceptance that removal is a vital tool that we have and is the science is very clear that we are going to need removal capacity and to be able to not just fund a bunch of research without like risk of being called on moral hazard and like being able to fund research as well as companies has been really exciting. And I think for us, the next step is really like that data intelligence and that data layer around like, how do we think about valuing quality at scale? And a lot of people are working on this, not just like from lots of different perspectives around better carbon counting, better rating systems, but spending a lot of time, at least we are spending a lot of time on scalable MRB solutions, mostly for nature-based, but for lots of different applications and, and think that's hopefully going to be a really important part around building trust in mostly a voluntary environment where I think for the most part, what you're trading is trust. There is maybe some indirect economic benefit, I'm sure, for corporates who are using this to drive better employee retention and marketing. Um, but, you know, in a voluntary environment, which looks like the one that we're going to have in the U.S. for foreseeable future, given we're recording this on EPA ruling day, I just think like anything that we can do to scalably verify and communicate the trust of these assets is like absolutely vital to see my continue to flow in the way that we've seen it. So spending a lot of time there as well. Definitely similarly have been hyped about carbon markets. I think it's easy for folks like yourself and myself, like we already think about markets. So if you then inject the conversation with something like a carbon market, that's uh, always going to be uniquely fun. But yeah, I've made the same, not like switch, but progression to being really interested in who is going to enable really great measurement and verification across all these different types of solutions. Because without that, you don't really have carbon removal. Like you can have the measurement without the actual removal, but you can't have the removal without the measurement. Back to the point about saying yes, one out of every 500 meetings and just like taking that many meetings to begin with, like you see so many different climate tech companies come across your desk, massive amount of deal flow, I'm sure. Beyond familiar challenges that everyone's dealing with, whether it's like the fundraising environment itself that's changed a lot in the last few months or being able to source like the parts that you need, supply chain stuff, like what are some connections across different verticals in climate tech that maybe have surprised you? Like you gestured earlier at trying to take learnings from how solar and DERs have scaled and apply that elsewhere. Like where else are you seeing interesting connections that maybe you didn't see six months ago when you first joined Wireframe? I think one that is evolving, and it's actually related to capital markets, is like who's going to fund the first facilities of these companies? And I think that is relevant across lots of different types of technology as well as different sectors. And so like you can get creative and do joint partnerships with large incumbents, large buyers. A lot of people fund it with equity, sometimes venture debt. 
And there are a few players that are coming down the staff to do first for first facility financing. But I think that is something that I wasn't around for the first boom. But I think that I can safely say, I don't know if we've ever seen this many deep tech companies get funded with like really credible teams, really credible tech. And I think that we've also never had as much dedicated capital to funding these companies and taking them to scale. What is less clear to me is the step before you can tap into like the really big pools of capital that is looking are looking for like very stabilized assets, you know, series C, series D that already have a commercial scale plant that they can underwrite and fund. And so I think that's like my consistent wish is that there's like a bunch of people that are really excited to take on specifically first facility financing risk. And that's pretty common across all of our companies. I would say something we also work with a lot of our companies on, and I don't think this is even necessarily particularly unique to climate, but just thinking about building customer-centric products from the beginning and like how you bring on a commercial hire that can help you do that or how you can allocate more of your time if you're a scientist, CEO, and founder to that work, I think is something that I actually think is changing really positive way where I think people are like learning the playbooks, learning the business models really quickly. And where like three years ago, I think coming out of a lab, there were much fewer people that had done it and done it successfully and scaled and also less infrastructure around supporting them. We have great accelerators and incubators like Activate, IndieBio, others that have been around for a long time are scaling and increasing their program size to do that. And we also have a lot of investors that now have a lot of reps doing it. But I think even still it's not often like obvious exactly when you can bring out your first commercial hire and how to make them happy. Like when there's nothing to sell, I think it's a pretty specific role to fill, but I think can make a huge difference in the trajectory of a business in terms of like the specificity around what they're building and when they can get to market. And so we don't have enough of I definitely anecdotally have had some people hit me up and be like, hey, I'm looking for a head of sales role and I want it to be in climate. And that is hopefully going to 10x still. But the fact that it's starting to happen is a good seed. And yeah, first facility financing, not something that was super on my radar as a concept. So appreciate you bringing that to the fore. Well, I'll close with uh, what's your favorite restaurant in Brooklyn? A little bit of a personality question. What's something I should try out there? Oh, boy. I won't give you one in your neighborhood because I'm sure you know your neighborhood better than I do. <laughs> but my favorite right now is Hanea, which is like modern Korean food in North Slope. And it's just pretty sneaky, low-key, but just 10 out of 10. Like they do beignets. So, I mean, they could literally just make beignets and I would go every day. But <laughs> they do beignets, they do killer drinks and just like the most amazing creative modern cream food i found in new york yeah no i'll definitely be going that's plenty of climate investing alpha on the pod and also now some brooklyn underground not super hyped up eats alpha for folks too happy to thanks so much lily thanks nick it's been a pleasure yeah thanks for having me have a great day Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.